invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin reading at verse 19, and we'll read through verse 44. Uh, this is uh, taking place the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. This very likely happens on a Wednesday. Uh, he will be crucified on a Friday. And so the opposition to Jesus is now ramped up. Uh, the leaders are committed to putting an end to his ministry one way or the other. And uh, we have here two challenges and as they attempt to derail Christ and the swelling popularity that is, uh, they see in the crowds. And um, so we have, we have conflict. This is a text about uh, the conflict between Jesus Christ and uh, the leaders of God's people those who should have been welcoming him. Let's begin at verse uh, 19. If you remember uh, in the previous, just earlier here in verse, um, in chapter 20, uh, they came and they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And um, Jesus said, well, you tell me, John, what what authority did he do his ministry? And they got caught on a dilemma there, and so the horns of a dilemma, and so they just said, well, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you uh, by whose authority I do what I do. And then he told a parable about uh, this man who had a a vineyard, and and he he lent it out, and the tenants uh, beat his servants and killed his heir, the son, and um, what then will the father do? What will the master do to these tenants? And they know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about them, uh, but they continue their pursuit of him. Let's pick it up, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not... God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. 
But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his, his ministry. I thank you for his truth. I thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection and the fact that he reigns today at the right hand of God, having made his enemies his footstool. And Lord, I pray that today we would love this Jesus and see him in his glory, trust him and believe in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you read through the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Christ, uh, the uh, part of the tremendous drama of the story is that uh, Jesus' words and miraculous works all take place against the tragic backdrop of opposition, settled opposition, fierce, intentional Um, resolute opposition from the leaders of God's people. The people who should have been leading the way in welcoming the Messiah are instead leading the way in trying to derail uh, his ministry and to, um, to get rid of Jesus, even to kill him. And the the tragedy of their actions is all the more um, magnified in light of the fact that these are the men who had the scriptures. They, They would have the scrolls. They would have memorized those scrolls. They knew all the prophecies about the Christ. They had the words of the prophets. They had Jesus himself right in front of them speaking the gospel message. Declaring the truth about God and and in his miraculous works, giving irrefutable evidence that he was exactly who he claimed to be, the son of the father. And they refused to believe it. Have you ever had the uh, experience of uh, being in a discussion with someone and um, having soundly, thoroughly um, won the argument? I mean, it was just one of those rare times where things just fell into place and you, you came up with the right thing to say or, or you had the irrefutable proof and bam, there it was, and you presented it. End of discussion. And, and the person said, well, I don't believe that. I mean, you won the argument. Come rejoice with me. They don't want to rejoice. They don't want to, they're not going to believe it. They're not going to accept it. Jesus had that every single day, where his works and his words were irrefutable, irrefutable proof of who he was and, and um, his identity, his mission, every single day, irrefutable proof and every single day settled opposition. We will not believe. Every day, our Lord endured that. And every day, these men had Jesus right in front of them, and every day, they ignored him, denied him sought to put him to death. Can you imagine what eternity is like for these men? What endless, bottomless regret is theirs today? I cannot, I cannot imagine. What we have here in our text, um, the ongoing opposition. Jesus had just told a parable. It's been a very... Uh, painfully clear parable. Jesus is calling the leaders the wicked tenants. 
He's telling them exactly what they're doing. And he says this publicly in front of the crowds. They want to lay hands on him at that very hour. They want to grab him right there and do away with him. But they're afraid if they do anything to Jesus, because of the adulation of the crowds, the crowds will stone them to death. And so they get together and they come up with a new plan. A new tactic. They will make Jesus Rome's problem. It's clear from our text that the, um, the leaders are panicking. They're frantic. Jesus is riding this tsunami wave of adulation. The people are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. They're singing and dancing, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the hour, the um, enthusiasm is growing. The word is spreading like wildfire. And the leaders are seeing the foundations of their authority, their prestige, their power are being shaken and shattered. Uh, This has to stop. Jesus has to be, uh, he's got to be killed. And so they they decided a new way of of getting rid of him, and and, and a very, very clever uh, way, actually. And that would be um, to to make him Rome's problem. To, to To somehow get Jesus to catch the attention of Rome and so that Rome feels um, committed to responding. Um, and, and the tax question is going to do it. Uh, you see, Rome was um, pretty tolerant of, of the, the nations that they, they came to rule over. They would allow um, leaders to, to exercise local authority and control. Um, they, they realized that the Jews were kind of fanatic about their religion, and so they allowed the Jews to have certain privileges. But the one thing that Rome had no time or patience for was insubordination. A Pax Romana, you've heard of it, they're very serious about Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, in fact, Josephus, a um, historian of the age, tells us that just 30 years prior to this, a man from Galilee named Judas had started a revolt saying, um, we are not going to pay taxes to this Gentile dog in Rome. And so the Romans killed him, and that, that was the end of, of that revolution. That's how they respond to things like this, and the religious leaders know this perfectly well, and so the, the way to get rid of Jesus is get him to say something that sounds treasonous. Get him to say something that sounds like he's, he's leading a rebellion, and Rome will be forced to take action. In fact, we, we, we know this is what they're thinking, because even though they present this issue to Jesus, and, and, he, and he commands them to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, When they bring Jesus in front of Pilate, we'll see that in chapter 23, what they say to Pilate is, this man is misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Flat out lie, but it's the thing they know is going to get Rome's attention. And so that's what they're trying to do here. And in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a great scheme because they also realize that, that if Jesus is just arrested, it's going to break the spell uh, that he has uh, on, the, on the crowds. Because, you, you see, they're convinced that he's the one that, that came to get rid of Roman power. That's what Messiah means to them, that he's going to get rid of Roman oppression. And so if Jesus gets arrested and whipped with Roman whips and put in Roman shackles and in a Roman prison, it's going to be patently clear to everybody that he's not the Messiah that they thought he was. 
and they will turn on him. And that's exactly what happened. They, these guys know what they're about. They know what they're doing. And so they set a trap. Verse 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, if you just step back from this a moment and um, look at the scene, you can see the ridiculous futility of this attempt. Imagine sending spies, quote-unquote, to trick Jesus, the creator of all. It's like um, watching your two-year-old sneak up on you in the kitchen with a towel over his head, firmly convinced that because he can't see you, you can't see him. Right? And it's cute, and uh, you, you sort of chuckle at their naivety. Uh, it's cute because they're two years old. It's not cute when they're 30-some years old. And that's what these guys are. It's embarrassing. You see, what they're doing is putting their hands over their spiritual eyes, thinking that because they, don't, they can't see him, Jesus can't see them. But he knows exactly who they are. He knows every thought that's ever entered their mind. He knows every motive of their heart. He knows every cell in their body. He knows the exact number of their days before they plunge into eternity. From their perspective, this is not going to end well. Well, they send the spies, and the spies uh, go about their setup. You notice they start with flattery. Teacher, nice, respectful term. We know, teacher, that you speak and teach rightly, and you show no partiality. It's amazing. You truly speak the way of God. Now, that's high praise, and it's absolutely true. It's, it's more true than they even know. But you see, they're not speaking the truth truthfully. They don't, they don't mean it. They're pretending to be sincere. They're pretending to be earnest disciples. They, they want Jesus to know we are on your side. We love what you're doing. They want to gain his trust, um, show themselves to be allies of his cause. Uh, they, they think, you see, Jesus has these um, these messianic dreams as well of, of getting rid of Rome and, and making Israel great again. And so they're going to get on his good side. And, and, and once Jesus trusts them as allies, now they can spring the question and he'll be free and maybe even a little bit coerced into giving the answer they want him to give. And so the, the setup in place, now they spring the snare. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? Or not? Now that's uh, not just a tax question. That that question is is loaded with political and theological uh, realities. It was the, the poll tax. It's called. It was, it was the most uh, infuriating tax for a, a a Jewish person because it was uh, it was the tax that you got to pay every year um, for the privilege of having the boot of Rome on your neck. It's insult to injury. You didn't ask for, it's sort of like, well, I won't get into it. <laughs> there are parallels. Um, insurance companies come to mind, but we, we, I said we're not going to go there. Um, but you see, this is, this is just a tax you have to pay. This is the tax that um, Joseph and Mary go down to pay, down to Bethlehem. You have to pay it. And, and it exists purely because Rome has the authority to say, uh, we'd like uh, some more money, please. For the privilege of being a Roman citizen, or being, being under the boot of Rome, we're going to have you pay this. And as Jews, you see, this is a, it's an insidious thing because they're God's people. And they keenly sense that things are not the way they should be. They should have their own king. 
That's why they're so excited about Jesus, because it seems like that's exactly what he's come to do. He's come to, to throw off this yoke of oppression. And so, you see, it's a very carefully loaded question. If Jesus says, um, yes, it's lawful to pay the tax, he immediately loses credibility with the crowds. But if he says no, it's not lawful, which is exactly what they want him to say and what they, they I think, are sensing he will say. He's in a kind of a tough spot here because the, the crowds are standing right there. If he says no... They're going to immediately charge him with leading a revolution, and they will, they'll report him to the authorities. That's the whole purpose. It's a very clever trap. But Jesus' response is absolute genius. We read he perceived their craftiness. Of course he did. He, knew, he knows what's in the heart of a man. And he simply says, show me a denarius. So someone digs around and comes up with a denarius and, and gives it to Jesus. And he says, um, who's, whose likeness do you see here? And they all say, well, that's Caesar's. And that's exactly right. Caesar had coins made and his image was stamped on it. Some of them claimed that he was the son of God. These are offensive coins, but there it is. There's Caesar's face right on it. And so Jesus says, well, then, uh, why don't you render to Caesar, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and, and to God the things that are God's. It is stunning in its simplicity. Rabbis have been spilling ink and arguing about this for centuries, this, this perplexing social, theological, political dilemma. And Jesus, in 11 words, just puts it to rest. Render, that means restore, uh, pay what you owe to Caesar, the things that are his, and then, and then pay what you owe to God, the things that are God's. And, and in that just short little phrase, you could do, well... People have. There's, there's a whole uh, theology of, of what it means to be a Christian in this world. That, that we live as citizens of this world and also citizens of the world to come. So that we belong to the kingdom of men in, 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 in the normal ways that we're, uh, we're subject to the laws of the land. But we also we live in the kingdom of God and we're subject to the, to the laws of the kingdom of God. But Jesus here clearly establishes the legitimacy of Caesar's authority because it's God-given authority. Uh, Caesar is a pagan, no, no question about it. And yet his authority comes from, the, from God. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so Jesus refutes this, um, the idea that as, as Jews we should not have to pay these taxes. That, that this is an illegitimate ruler over us, and we do not owe him anything. And Jesus just completely destroys it. No, this is God's appointed ruler, and you're requir required to give him the, the honor, the respect, the money that he rightfully asks for. That's a good lesson for us as American Christians. Uh, we need to remember that our presidents do not receive their authority ultimately because they get the most votes. They receive their authority ultimately because they've been instituted by God. It does not mean you have to agree with their policies. It does mean we have to recognize their right to rule and we have an obligation to pay our taxes and to obey the laws of the land. Uh, this is, this is the, the, the ethic throughout the New Testament. When they talk about rulers and authorities, they talk immediately about submit yourself. Fear God, honor the king. Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 17, fear God, honor the king. 
But you see, this also means, the way Jesus goes about this, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's, that Jesus wants to make clear that Caesar's not the final word in what's happening in Israel. In fact, his authority is specifically a delegated authority. There is a king over Caesar. It's wonderful news, again, for us. It means that we don't, our lives are not in the hands of, of our political leaders. We don't have to panic when our candidate fails to win or every time our president does something wicked or stupid. There is a sovereign king who reigns in heaven, who reigns on the throne of the universe, and he holds the heart of a king in his hands. He ordains the events of our day-to-day life and the course of history for nations. And so you see, Christians should be marked by a deep, settled confidence in the midst of turmoil and panic and fear and and uproar. Because we know that the great matters of our lives are not in the hands of earthly kings, but the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. And the great concern of our life are not political in nature, but spiritual and eternal Sinclair Ferguson says, the great issue of my life is not what is happening around me politically. The great issue of the day in my life is whether my life is holy and unreservedly the Lord's. And and when it is, I, by his grace, am able to live for his glory under any circumstances. See, our passion ought to be give to God what is God's. We're willing to give to Caesar what is Caesar, but that's just a passing thing. But what we're excited about is giving to God's what is God's. And Jesus here, of course, is is, um, appealing to the reality of of the fact that you are made in the image of God. Whose coin is this? Well, it's got Caesar's image right on it. You owe it to Caesar because his inscription is there. Well, well, what do you owe to God then? You owe to God everything that bears his inscription, which means all of you. Because you're made in his image, you're made in his likeness. Let us make man in our image, God says, Genesis 1.26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. God has placed his inscription upon all of you, your body, your mind, every part of you. He's made you, and so you owe him the whole thing. All, right, the love of all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You owe him your worship. You owe him obedience. You owe him love. Simply, not because, just because you're a Christian. You, you owe him that because you're a human. That's why when we go out in the world, uh, we, we, people can stumble over the fact, well, you know, my neighbors aren't Christians, so can I, can I call them to worship God? I mean, they, they don't believe in God. Well, are they human? If they're human, you can lay on them the obligation they have to worship God. They are made in His image. They're made in His likeness. And you can appeal to them exactly on that basis. Give to God what is God's. And so you see, Jesus in this one little statement blows away their small little categories and settles the issue, puts things in their proper perspective, and marveling at his answer, they became silent. They're not going to go and ask him another question. But some other guys are going to. The Sadducees. 
And we're not going to take a lot of time here because it, it, in some sense, doesn't deserve a lot of time. Um, the, the, the question of the scribes and the Pharisees here, it was a clever question. The question of the Sadducees is a silly question. Uh, the Sadducees are the ruling party. They're, they're, these are guys, uh, they do not believe in a resurrection. They believe when you die, you die. So what they're really interested in is power and money. These are the guys that are in charge of the money changers at the temple. So, so you come with your Roman money. You can't pay your, um, your temple tax with Roman money. You've got to get it exchanged for Jewish money. And in that process, the Sadducees are going to make sure they're getting their cut. This is why Jesus goes to the temple, flips the tables over, and says, you've made this house of prayer a den of robbers. That's the Sadducees. They are very closely linked with Roman authority because uh, it's greasing their wheels. It's, it's, uh, they're getting money from this. And so they've got the most to lose if Jesus actually starts an uprising. But they're well-versed in political things. They're poorly versed in theological things. So they come with this question. This is um, the one theological principle they really stood on was there is no resurrection. And uh, they would take this argument... <coughs> about a man who died, and the Old Testament law required that if a man dies and he doesn't have any children, that the brother then marries her, both to protect her and to produce offspring for his dead brother, so that his brother's inheritance isn't lost. This happens. We know um, Judah's daughter, remember Tamar? And Judah had two boys, two sons, and wicked sons, but one died, and so he gave his second son to Tamar, and, and he died as well. Uh, Ruth and Boaz's story is based on the same thing. It's a good law. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful law. But they use it to ridicule the truth of the resurrection. So here's, here's this case. This, this uh, woman marries into this, um, this tragic family that uh, she marries one man and he drops off and he marries another one and he dies. And right on down the line and there are no children. And there they all are, right, in heaven, arguing about uh, who gets her as his wife for the kingdom of heaven. And they chuckle to themselves. Here they've taken Moses and they've completely um, shown the ridiculousness of the idea of a resurrection. They're taking the Bible to prove the resurrection couldn't possibly happen. Jesus' response in Matthew, Mark uh, mentions it as well, I think is a classic. He says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Uh, there are people who say that there are no stupid questions. Here you have biblical evidence that there are, in fact, <clears throat> stupid questions, and this is one of them. It's a stupid question. They're trying to use Scripture to, to defeat the truth of the resurrection, standing in front of Jesus, the eternal God, Lord of life. Their intent is to, you see, they're just playing games. So Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. In the, in the resurrection, there's no marriage. So your whole premise is shot. You, you, all they could imagine was an eternity that's like time. Jesus says it's not like time. There's no marriage in heaven. We're like angels and, and we live forever. And um, th th we don't have the same relationships uh, that we have here on earth. Now, some people are thinking, um, well, I really like being married. Good for you. That's awesome. I like it too. But every relationship you have in heaven is going to be infinitely better than the, relation, than the best marriage you have here on earth. Because there won't be any sin. And your glory will be that we belong to Jesus Christ. 
Bible says that it is not, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus is just saying, you guys have no idea what you're talking about because you have no idea about the glory of that new age. And then, if you want to quote Moses, and Jesus refers them to the instance of the bush where Moses calls God, where God reveals himself, I am the God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says he's, He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Even Moses gives evidence of the truth of the resurrection. Some of the scribes standing nearby um, said, Teacher, you've spoken well. They know their their Bible. They, They know that he's absolutely right. And they no longer dared ask him any questions. As much as these men would have loved to trip him up, they realize it's just not going to work. Every time they try, Jesus answers flawlessly in a wisdom that shames and rebukes them. Uh, And even his enemies are left to marvel at his response, and they finally just shut up. Which is exactly what the Bible says will happen on the last day. Every mouth will be silenced. Every Richard Dawkins, every... um, you know, confident little sinner who's is mouthing his oppositions to God has all these reasons why it's silly and ridiculous. And the moment he sees the living God, just silence. The English poet Richard Crashaw put this text to poetry in a poem that he entitled uh, from the King James, Neither Durst Any Man That Day Ask Him Any More Questions. And this is what Crashaw writes. "'Twas time to hold their peace when they had ne'er another word to say. Yet is their silence unto thee the full sound of thy victory. To hold their peace is all the ways these wretches have to speak thy praise." They finally just shut up. And this is the last time we know that Jesus engages the leaders in this way. No more debates. Their silence is a public acknowledgement of their defeat and Christ's victory. But it's not the end of the discussion because Jesus has a question for them. And that's how we'll wrap up. Jesus in verse 41 and following has a question for them. Takes it from Psalm 110, which people recognize as a messianic psalm. And Jesus says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David says in the book of Psalms that the Lord, uh, the, the Hebrew here would read Yahweh, the Lord God, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Thus David, call, David thus calls him Lord Adonai. So how is he his son? So there's two there's, there's these two people in, uh, in, in Psalm 110, the Lord Yahweh speaking to the Lord Adonai, What's that about? And David calls this, this second Lord, Adonai, uh, his son. David says, he says to the, his son, my Lord. So Jesus says, how is that, how is that possible? Now we know the answer because we're on this side of it. They're, they don't, this is a riddle for them. But you see, the answer to the riddle is, the only answer is that, well, Jesus is God. David's son, whom Jesus clearly is, coming from the lineage of David, David's son is God. And and David's son is exactly the one Yahweh said, sit at my right hand, the place of power and authority and rule, until I make your enemies, the Sadducees, Pharisees, your footstool. It gets pretty personal. 
Jesus is laying bare the truth of who he is, and he's, and he's exposing the truth of his destiny. Yes, they want to put him to death, and they will succeed in putting him to death, but not by their will, but his will. It just struck me as I was studying this week that in the history of the world, never have wicked men been so intent on killing someone, so willing and ready to die. Jesus was much more committed to this death than they were. He came for this reason. This was determined between he and the Father in the Council of Eternity when Jesus, when they made that wonderful covenant of redemption and, and Christ uh, says, here I am, send me. And he commits himself for this reason he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as they eagerly pursue his death, Jesus Christ, the one who ordained his death, is making his way to the cross. But the cross was not the end of the story. This Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God. He would reign. He would rule as God's appointed king. This is the text, if you remember, that Peter used for the first Christian sermon. The, the, uh, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 from Psalm 110. Let all, let all the house of Israel... Therefore, know for certain that God, Yahweh, has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What convicted them? It wasn't that there's an interesting thing happening here in Psalm 110. What convicted them was the stark reality that this Jesus of Nazareth was seated at the right hand of God and was actually ruling the world, and they had crucified him. What do you do about that? What do you do when you have offended the reigning king to that degree? And Peter's answer was believe and be baptized. Believe in him. You see, this king came not simply to judge you. He came to rescue you. And the, wonderful, the wonder of the gospel is that, that exactly the people who put him to death are the people that he died to save. That's, that's good news because you put him to death. I put him to death. It was my sin that was laid on Jesus Christ. All my rebellion, all my perversion, all my unbelief, my pride and lust and anger and yours, that was laid on Christ. That's why he suffered. That's why he died. What shall we do? And the Bible says, believe that this Jesus was given for you. But you see, Jesus ends the discussion. Jesus has the last word. And in his last word, he, he places the reality of who he is, the reality of his reign, and then sets it before these men and before us. What will you do with Jesus? My question to you this morning is, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? In, in real life. Sort of just nodding to him and getting on with things? Or, or is the reality of who Christ is and the reality of his reign, the reality of his gospel, is that becoming more precious to you, more a part of your life, more identifying you and molding you? What are you doing with Jesus? This isn't a question simply to be answered on the last day. You're answering the question today. This day is where you answer the question. What are you doing with the Christ? 
And the wonder is, you see, this is a call to believe in him. What shall we do? Well, believe in him. Stop dawdling. Stop playing games with, with, with eternal truths. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I, and I say that, I, whether you've never done that before in your life or whether you've been a Christian for years, it, it, it's still needed today, isn't it? Today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the day of salvation. And then trust in his reign. Let's, and I say this to myself, I, I, I tend to worry. It's not okay. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's unbelief, lack of confidence in a reigning king. And you read your newspaper, and I read the newspaper, and we hear of wars, and we hear rumors of wars. And Jesus said, I sit at the right hand of my Father in heaven. Come to me and trust in me. And so it's a call to trust, truly, thoroughly, to trust and then to hope in his promise that this, this life, we're, we're to live in the conviction that this life isn't all there is and that our lifestyle should reflect this is not all there is. The way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the things that we fill our mind and heart with uh, should be testifying to the fact that we are convinced that there is, a, there is a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that there is a home that, that is not belonging to this world. It's a home that our Lord Jesus Christ is preparing for us, and it's eternal and it's everlasting, and we're going there, and that's home. And that's what we live for. That's what we hope for. That's what we wait for. In the confidence that one day it will be ours, because God is the God of the living. Friend, what are you doing with Jesus? I call you this morning to believe in him, to trust in him, to hope for him to wait for him. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God in heaven, I thank you so much for this beautiful Savior. I thank you that the, the shepherd of our soul is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, all authority and power having been given to him. And I thank you, oh God, that it's not a Bible story. It's not an idea. It's not a religious thought. It's truth. And this Jesus calls us today in love and grace to trust in him. Forgive us, oh God, for our fears. Forgive us for our anxieties. Forgive us for our worldliness. Forgive us for living as though the things of this life were the ultimate things. I, oh God, I pray that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be a people more and more besotted with God and thrilled with the gospel, committed to the cause of Christ, and willing to follow our good shepherd wherever he leads us, as he leads us safely home. And we'll give you all the praise in this life, and oh God, we will do it for eternity, all by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.